My dad is Jewish and my mom is Christian. Um, and you know, I just I didn't, for various reasons, like find a home in either of those religions. You know, um, yeah, I just I've always been kind of a seeker and kind of looking for God in various places. I was living in this intentional community in New Mexico, which is an ecumenical, lay-led, um, spiritual community. And this woman showed up, probably the first person to show up in hijab at this community in 40 years or so, and it was Mona. Yeah, I mean, I had just experienced a personal tragedy, and that sent me on my own sort of journey up the mountain to New Mexico. And I was definitely not interested in meeting a man or getting married or anything. And when I met Sebastian, he just became a, a dear friend. You know, she was not looking to have me become Muslim. And I wasn't looking to have her teach me, but just by virtue of our friendship, mm -hmm. um, it was like the door opened. I think it was the way you practiced, the way you prayed, and the way you held your faith, like, beautifully. But it was sort of this invitation, and our life started unfolding and my spiritual life started unfolding and I sort of felt like I was being carried down this river and it's just energizing and it's beautiful. That is Sebastian Robbins and Mona Haydar. They're talking about his spiritual journey in The Great Muslim American Road Trip, a new film produced by Unity Productions Foundation currently streaming on PBS. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, I'm talking with the film director, Alex Cronimer. As we get back to the conversation, I ask him about the decision to include Sebastian and Mona's personal faith practices in the film, and if there are any concerns about furthering misperceptions about what it means to be Muslim. Let's just first of all say that, like most religious adherents in this country, whether you be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or, or whatever, you know, your, your degree of religiosity is on a continuum. Some people who identify as Christian may only go to church once or twice a year. Some others may go to church two or three times a week, right? That kind of thing. Same thing for Muslims. Um, people who identify as Muslims, some of them may pray once in a while or maybe not even at all. And others are rigorous in their in their uh, practice. Mona and Sebastian are rigorous. You know, they they do meet their five prayers. In fact, we often had to accommodate that in the trip for them to be able to do that. So it's just a, it, and it isn't like they're showing off or they're they're trying to illustrate or they're trying to hide it. I mean, it's just a part of who they are. And um, so these things kind of come out very naturally in the show. Was it important? Um, was it important for you to have two people? who were rigorous in their practice? Well, I mean, I mean, ultimately it's television and, um, uh, you know, you do, you know, if, if the, if the couple, if the subject, if the characters are supposed to be something, they have to seem like that. Right. Or, or you lose the sense of who they are. So, you know, if we had, chosen a uh, two people who didn't practice at all who you know uh, were very um, indistinguishable from just any other person of any other faith or no faith then you know the idea of this being a, a road trip taken by muslims would be lost even if they themselves still identified as muslims but there was no sense of their engagement with the muslim community or with the faith then 
that would be lost in my opinion. So, you know, we did want to have uh, a couple who, who, you know, not only identified themselves as Muslims, but were practicing to some degree. There is this tremendous diversity in the Muslim community, yet so much of the public imagination, the American imagination, tends to focus on the things that are separate or unique or distant from the practices that people see as familiar. And I'm just curious, like how, how you wrestle with that um, as, yeah. as a director, as a filmmaker. Mona, let's just pick her out because she is much more, she's the most identifiably typical in quotes Muslim, you know, because she wears hijab and so forth is so um, not just, you know, kind of completely American, but also just this very hip a progressive person. So seeing a person who is a stereotype breaker, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Who, who, who dresses a certain way, who looks a certain way, but who doesn't fit any of the stereotypes, hopefully becomes a stereotype breaker. So, so, um, you know, in addition to our filmmaking work, we, you know, we do quite a bit of consulting uh, in Hollywood on various television programs and, and movies and such. And, you know, there's this um, uh, idea of, you know, the good, in quotes, the good Muslim who's portrayed in many of these things. And the good Muslim is usually the one who doesn't practice, is usually the one who also drinks alcohol and who also does this and also does that, who's like everybody else, right? Often the 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 one who is portrayed as being more, religious is often the bad guy or often the negative foil. Uh, And so there's this othering that we've come to uh, do with Muslims, that they are in a different box. They behave in a different way. They think a different way. And we're trying to break that stereotype down in the way we're telling the story. Growing up, I, for one, heard that there were Muslims in the Midwest, but I had no idea on the backstory. In The Great Muslim American Road Trip, public religion scholar Edward Curtis fills in the blanks. Here's Dr. Curtis guiding Mona and Sebastian on their tour through St. Louis in Episode 1. We are so excited for our personalized tour through St. Louis's 150 years of Muslim history. Muslims began to voluntarily immigrate to the United States in larger numbers, you know, after the Civil War. Most of them who came at that time would have been from what many people know as the Middle East, the countries of Palestine, Jordan, but especially Syria and Lebanon. The majority of Syrians who came were actually um, Christian, but there were a number of Muslims. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, uh, there were also people coming from, Muslims coming from Bengal, from Central Asia, Afghanistan, right, from, from Turkey itself from Bosnia, from the southeastern Europe. And so what was the motivation? What was the driving force that drove this immigration? They came for the reason why millions of immigrants came after the Civil War up until World War I. You know, that was mostly for economic opportunity. There was push and there was pull. In most of the places from which they came, there was um, some kind of economic displacement. There just weren't enough jobs. And the United States was in need of cheap labor. So in, in one sense, what happened then is still happening today, right? There's push and pull. People are displaced for one, for one reason or another. People sometimes become refugees, and they need a place to land. 
For example, in the 1990s, thousands of Bosnian refugees came to St. Louis, you know, looking for refuge, looking for a place to establish a community and raise their kids in relative safety and with some degree of economic opportunity. But if you want to know when Muslims first came to St. Louis, the largest population of Muslims before World War II probably came to the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair to work here. Mm. So here's a, a map of the fair. Huh. And one of the things that uh, sometimes people forget about the fair is Jerusalem was reproduced at a one-to-one scale. The old city of Jerusalem, what? Al-Quds. What? And so you see it right in the center there. Huh. The Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, it was one-to-one scale. And they had the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Kotal or the Wailing Wall. It was wow. all right there. And then you look, Morocco's right next door. <laughs> <laughs> My relatives came because of that, because of these fairs, mm. right? And maybe a long-lost relative of yours came, some long-lost cousin. Yeah. But I want to show you where actually most of the Muslims um, from the fair came from. Okay. For the 1904 World's Fair, the organizers imported 1,100 people from Philippines. It's the largest single foreign population. And among their number were hundreds of people from, um, from southern Philippines or the island of Mindanao. And this is where Muslims live. These were called Moros or Moors, Muslims. Huh. They were wildly popular in the fair. They called the Moros semi-civilized. They displayed savages like pygmies at the fair. Mm-hmm. And then they, they contrasted them with all of the, you know, white culture, which was seen as, as civilized and right. industrial and modern. Right. But, but the Moros and the Muslims in general stood right in between. They were right in the middle. They were wow. semi They got an upgrade. Right. Symbolized. Right. Got an upgrade. I don't know if you know, but I have a song called Barbarian <laughs> about that exact topic. So that's a very sore spot for me. <laughs> if they're civilized, I'd rather stay savage. Barbarians, beautiful and scaring them. Earth shaking, rattling. Be wild out loud again. This nose, decolonize. This hair, decolonize. This skin, decolonize. This body, decolonize. This mind, decolonize. Immigration is cut off in the 1920s. The National Origins Act basically cuts off immigration from anywhere where people of color are from. What was the driving force behind that cutoff? The Ku Klux Klan got its wish. One of their main goals was to cut off immigration from non-white people, from non-Nordic people. And it was a very powerful organization at that time. And that law stayed on the books until 1965. It's startling to hear because I came to this country not long after those laws changed, and my family lived in the Midwest, too, including Springfield, Illinois. Tell me how you ended up there. Well, Springfield was one of those places where we stumble across the Muslim community, uh, leaving Chicago, finding out, whoa, there's a mosque in Springfield. Mm -hmm. It's the one segment, the one part of the story where we actually see our couple pray with other Muslims. We don't do that really throughout the rest of the show, but we do it there. And we translate part of the prayer in English on screen because, again, it's to demystify uh, what are Muslims actually doing when they're, you know, when they're 
bowing their heads when, when, you're, when this Arabic is being said. What are they saying? Well, you know, what they're saying actually is something that any, and I keep using Christian, I know the audience you have is more than Christians, but I'm using that as the, uh, as the kind of benchmark. You know, what Muslims say in their prayer is very much like the Lord's Prayer, almost exactly like the Lord's mm-hmm. Prayer. So just being able to translate that so that, that we can demystify uh, that aspect of Muslim life and who Muslims are, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to, you know, what we wanted to accomplish in the, really in all our work, by yeah. the way, not just this film, but that's, that's what we're trying to do. And, and it's kind of the first uh, moment in the film where we're seeing that diversity. Remind me of your name? Juan. Juan. Yeah. yeah. And Juan. Say, it. say it. Nice to meet you. Sebastian. Yeah. My name is Corey. Corey, nice yes. to meet you. And your name? Valerie. Valerie. I uh, joined the University of Illinois at Springfield in 1987. So it's been 34 years in Springfield. My children, all of them grew up here. When I came to America, what was interesting is to meet so many different Muslims from different countries yeah. with different cultural backgrounds, yeah. with their own diversity. I know. And where are you originally from? Bangladesh. I'm in the Army Reserve, in the Corps of Engineers. I was deployed wow. two times in Iraq and two times in Kuwait. Wow. Springfield has something like 25 plus ethnicities, and that's how many different kind of people pray in this wow. mosque. I'm Pakistani by birth. I grew up here. I was five years old when my family came. Okay. But I was in the Navy, uh, 15 years active duty, Um, one tour on a ship to the Middle East, one tour in Afghanistan. Did did the the Taliban target you in any way? I was second in command of a reconstruction team. I went out uh, and about, and they don't want educated Muslims meeting people. So as a Muslim, I was on a target list. I woke up every day and I didn't know if I'd be alive the next day. And I was actually told by one of our interpreters, look, Dr. Siddiqui, you should not go out on, on patrol anymore. And, and I said, I have to go out. We all, we all have to. Now, when you go to some of these smaller communities uh, that can really only support one mosque, you get a huge amount of diversity in that mosque because there's just one mosque. Everyone comes to it. Uh, whereas when you're in some larger places, like here in Washington, D.C., where I live, you know, because there's so many more Muslims, you tend to have mosques that that are that represent certain nationalities. Whereas in these smaller places, what was always lovely is you you know because it's smaller, everyone goes to that place. So you really see that uh, that melting pot that is uh, world Islam in these environments. I have heard over the last two years lots of critique interrogating the mythology around what it means, who the American dream is intended for. You're using it very intentionally in this production. Tell me what your thinking was as the director, like some of the choices that you made and what that phrase, the American dream, means to you in this project. Well, you know, I mean, uh, that's a really interesting question, you know, in terms of who's the American dream meant for. And, you know, and, and you often sometimes hear the American nightmare for some parts of uh, the American experience. We learn that um, the dreams that people have, uh, we, we actually encounter a few times where people talking to children or, you know, who, who talk about what they want to be. The kids that we have yeah. here today are refugees from Afghanistan. Each one of these kids carries a dream. What do you want to do when you grow older? Awesome. What kind of doctor? 
You want to work with kids, old people, foot doctor, brain doctor, ear doctor, elbow doctor. Every doctor. Every kind of medicine. Beautiful. Tell me about yourself. <laughs> business girl. Tell me what kind of business you'd like to have. Uh, I like to sell cars. Ah, do you like cars? I love cars too. Yeah. I want to do artists. You're in the perfect group to do artist things. How about you? Fire. Firewoman? Firefighter? Nice. That's what I used to want to do when I was little. Okay, you. Let's see this. Flip it over. So you have to flip it over and you have to smack my hands. That's what you have to do. Okay? That's the game. A big part is them feeling that this is home for them, that they belong. Oh! (laughs) Too slow. And that whatever they contribute is going to be valued. And we have little kids who want to be all the things that little kids want to be. I mean, it feels trite to say, oh, Muslims are just like everyone else. But in a way, um, it's a message that still is not entirely uh, believed, if even received by, by a lot of people. Uh, and that's kind of what we learn. In the first episode, when Islam is you know, compared uh, or at least contrasted in some ways with Christianity, especially in talking about Jesus. Did you intend on educating your audience about beliefs that spread from religion to religion? Well, you know, this is actually one of the stereotype-breaking things that, I mean, you know, again, we might imagine that a Muslim would have no interest or even maybe be hostile to a religious figure like Jesus or Mary. But what we there's a moment where the the couple goes to Santa Fe, and they go to the Basilica of Saint Francis because Mona studied Christian ethics uh, at, at the master's level. Again, something not expected, something you wouldn't think, and she was she had a you know a great fondness for Saint Francis of Assisi. So she they go to this Basilica of Saint Francis, and Mona sits down and has a conversation with the uh, uh, the head rector there. I was in Turkey during the Muslim holiday of Eid to see Mary's house. There were just hundreds and hundreds of people up there. I wondered how come all these Muslims would come on their holiday. Mm. And then I started to read more about how in the Quran, Mary is looked at as one of the purest women. It's funny, you know, as a Muslim, people often ask me what my relationship is to Jesus or Mary, and I just feel such a deep and devoted connection to mm-hmm. them both in their relationship. Oh, yes. You know, like Mary as mother and Jesus as her her son, and how, you know, she's this woman in the Quran who is often talked about as just devout and righteous mm-hmm. and blessed. I just feel like she is such an inspiration to me in the way she was tender and loving and devout to God, so much so that she could raise a child that could change the entire world. Mm -hmm. My favorite story is Jesus is at a wedding at Cana, and he goes to this wedding with his apostles, and Mary comes to him, and she says, they've run out of wine. And there was a long time when I didn't understand why that would be a concern for her. Mm. And it wasn't until somebody explained to me that hospitality was so important in Jesus' time that if you got a reputation for being hospitable, mm-hmm. they were going to kick you out of town. Mm. And so Mary was coming out of concern mm. for the couple, this young couple just getting married, this young couple who was running the risk of, of starting life in a tragedy. Mm. And 
You described her as that tender woman. Yes, oh God, yes. What love drives people to do that? Mm. I want to be that kind of person. And what they end up doing is they, they both share their reverence for Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, and, and, and Mona's expressing hers from her Muslim point of view, and he's expressing his, and it's very similar. And they both kind of just, it's, you know, kind of feed off each other's energy and enthusiasm for the topic. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. My conversation with film director Alex Cronomer continues as he describes how some things are changing in Hollywood when it comes to representation. Stay with us. 